guys did great. That was like the most peaceful technical failure <laughs> in the history of mankind. spoke uh, quite often about the topic for the day, virya, usually translated as energy, but sometimes as effort or persistence, dedication. And I think he spoke often about this because in an important sense, uh, neurosis is the path of least resistance. When we think about the kind of conditioning or or evolutionary conditioning of humans, you know, uh, roughly we want Naps, donuts, sex, security. (laughs) Roughly. (laughs) Uh, And we have, yeah, minimal tolerance for change, uncertainty, risk. You know, even when I like see a moving van parked like anywhere, I get a little freaked out. Like, even if it's like, it's just subtle. I wouldn't notice this if I weren't a meditator, but it's like, just seeing a moving truck, like, change, you know? I don't know who they are. This is not my neighborhood, but there's still something very primitive, just change, you know? And so, uh, we can say that that um, you know that that our happiness is not not at the top of evolution's to-do list. You know, evolution wants us doing other things, and happiness may be a factor in that, but that's um, it's it's not it's not our our programming, it's not our birthright exactly. It's not guaranteed. And so we do, you know, in some sense we have to, we go with the stream. You know, there are all these metaphors of enter, entering the stream. But the Buddha also said that this path is against the stream. Against the tide of neurosis, of habit. And so, as a consequence, uh, deep, deep growth is often not uh, comfortable and takes energy, requires that we go against the stream. Now, we're not letting go of uh, 
habits. Uh, we're not renouncing, as I alluded to the other day, we're not renouncing anything that brings us deep and abiding joy. Uh, we're renouncing half-hearted pleasures for a more durable form of well-being. But to let go of some of these habits, to let go, uh, to, to move against some of our conditioning requires energy and effort. The Buddha, when in talking in the context of anger, um, said, so he ca called anger, uh, uh, we, we must release anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned root. Maybe we know that, that experience of the honey, the sweetness of anger, resentment, a grudge, whatever. Uh, but that comes with the poison. And we actually have to renounce the taste of the honey, the sweetness of the honey, in order to avoid the root. And in a lot of aspects of our growth on the path, we are asked actually to let go of some honey. Our habits are not just here to like torture us on the meditation cushion. They're here because they serve purposes, because there's some honey somewhere. And yet the poisoned root comes with the honeyed tip. This is uh, Sam Harris. He says, uh, most of us are far wiser than we appear to be. We know how to keep our relationships in order, to use our time well, to improve our health, and to solve many other riddles of existence. But following even the straight and open path to happiness is hard. If your best friend were to ask you how she could live a better life, you would probably find many useful things to say, and yet you might not live that way yourself. On one level, wisdom is nothing more profound than an ability to follow one's own advice. Um, it's hard to follow our advice though, right? to follow our wisdom, in a sense. I have a friend who uh, teaches Dharma, and uh, uh, sometimes he'll, he'll kind of uh, listen to a, a recording, a podcast of one of his own talks, you know, just to kind of uh, see how it was and evaluate. And, and he said that, uh, that uh, he's had the kind of persistent experience of listening to his own talk and being like, that guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but that guy, that guy knows what's up. I gotta listen to him, <laughs> right? 
Now what's going on? I think what it is is that it takes energy to follow our own best advice. There is a model in uh, psychological science uh, where which considers self self control self regulation uh, akin to a muscle. It's like um, there's a finite pool of self regulatory fuel. And just like muscles fatigue in working out, so too we draw down from that finite pool of fuel. And we draw down that pool in lots of ways, you know. Just sitting here, just attending, is probably drawing down the pool to some extent. But of course, just like exercise and muscles, we can actually enhance the the strength. We can actually increase the self-regulatory energy. But repeated exertions, repeated uses of self-regulation fuel make it harder to renounce the next temptation. Maybe you know that uh, that experience of uh, after a, like a challenging long day uh, in life, it's like much harder to say no to ice cream, right? Or here, after like a super intense sit, it's like, please just give me some unconsciousness, you know? Like there's that backlash. And it's like, we walk out of here and it's like, you know, very floaty kind of, like, all right, the pool of energy is drawn down. This is uh, Roy Baumeister, a researcher, says that recent evidence has indicated that some uh, Brain and cognitive processes consume substantial amounts of energy, indeed some far more than others. The last in, first out rule states that abilities that have developed last in our evolutionary development are the first to become impaired when resources are compromised. Self-control as a relatively advanced human capacity was probably one of the last to develop and hence maybe one of the first to suffer impairments when resources are inadequate. And so from this kind of perspective, uh, so much of what we're, we're doing, this, this is, a training. There's an aspect of retreat practice, of meditation practice, of uh, renunciation that is a training, a training in letting go, a training in actually strengthening this this muscle. And 
the capacity to regulate oneself, to make, to rally energy, to move towards important goals, towards what we value most, that's a, that's a really important human capacity and uh, associated with lots of good outcomes. Now, we're trying to be wise and balanced in how we effort. That is, the question is really like, how do we effort? This, this is a path of letting go. How do we make effort in the context of letting go, in the context of ease, of relaxation? In the past, I, I have um, primarily practiced with the notion of more effort is always better. I was thinking about, th this is not just in Dharma practice, but I think that's a kind of persistent assumption in my life. Like when I do yoga and I hear you know, and you're sort of like being coached to make an adjustment, you know, to move your body in one way or another. Generally, I just try to make everything hurt a little more. <laughs> I just, I know there's some yoga teachers in here. I'm not one. <laughs> but I just figure if everything hurts more, that's probably better alignment. Because I'm not good. I heard a, no, no. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I don't, li don't take my advice. I'm just saying, this is how I've approached it. Um, now, uh, in, the, in the Dharma context, um, there's, there is a lot of, uh, uh, there is a lot of value in the kind of, um, the way the way one to just a kind of military style i'm just you know of of pushing of just like i'm just going to show up for every sit and every walk and i'm going to get up before the bell and i'm going to stay late and i'm going to you know and not just like i'm going to just there's no choice in that there's no variation we uh, are, in a certain sense, insensitive to the particular climate of our mind in that moment. We're just saying, yes, 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 yes. And there is, I, I don't want to undersell that, there's a lot of value in that. Um, and while I don't think we actually have to make that kind of effort, I do think we have to be willing to make that effort. That's a big difference. We may not need to make that effort to know some of the depths of the path, but I do think we need to be willing to make that effort. Now, in that kind of approach, um, there are, of course, real problems. And, you know, in practicing in that way, I uh, definitely many times pushed my body 
beyond its capacity and, and did actually wind up injuring myself in, a, in an enduring way. It's why I'm standing, actually. And, um, and so there's a, there can be a certain kind of blindness to the, uh, that kind of just no questions asked, more effort is better. And there's also often in that kind of effort, uh, in in all kinds of effort actually, an association between energy and tension. There is an association between effort and tension that runs quite deep. And so we wanna be aware of, of how we're making effort. What's the quality of the effort? What's the mind that's animating this effort? How much self is there in this effort? In some of my kind of more striving uh, practice, that was propelled by both you know, a longing, dhammachanda, a longing for the dharma and a lot of self-clinging, a lot of self-evaluation, a lot of self-comparison, evaluating myself in relation to everyone else, in relation to ideals, in relation to the teacher, in relation to anything. Anything I could get my hands on, I would measure myself against. And that kind of, uh, not all effort that's fueled by self is useless by any stretch. But it does, it's part of what we're doing is actually purifying our intention. Purifying our intention for practice. And in that form of effort, uh, there is uh, a lot, a lot of self often. So we can look um, at how we can be uh, resolute and persistent, but to make that effort in a way that is relaxed. Gil, uh, Gil Fransdahl has talked about uh, his experience of practicing in Zen for quite some time and then, then doing, sitting long retreat in uh, Burma and uh, practicing in the Mahasi kind of quite energetic, effortful style and he said that um, it was his Zen practice that set the kind of bedrock and foundation of non-doing, non-acquisition uh, that actually kept him balanced amidst the intensity of the effort and the, the kind of maybe striving uh, that characterized the, the Burmese practice. And so uh, I think it's, it's important to, to come back to um, this kind of 
checking in with the mind, what kind of tension has been, is being introduced in your efforting, and what can be relaxed, what feels like extra. The question, you can just ask the question, right now as I sit, the next time you're sitting in silent meditation, you can ask, what, what can I stop doing? What can I stop doing? Not what should I do, what can I stop doing? And people find it helpful uh, to come back to this, you know, kind of mental note, mantra, you know, it's, it's already here. It's already here. There's something for us already here. Sayadaw Tejaniya uh, says, uh, right effort is effort with wisdom because where there's wisdom, there's interest. The desire to know something is wisdom at work. Being mindful is not difficult, but it's difficult to be continuously aware. For that, you need right effort, but it doesn't require a great deal of energy. It's relaxed perseverance in reminding yourself to be aware. When you're aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. If the mind is relaxed, the mind knows something about itself. The meaning of effort is to try to continue, try to be patient, try to be relaxed. hand. Uh, okay, yeah, please. Okay, yeah, he is good. Uh, I'll post it on the board. Sure. Um, so, so uh, each of us has our own personal relationship with effort. And um, it's a, it's a, you know, Nikki was discussing investigation. This is actually a point to investigate. Yeah, the, the nature of the effort, what's animating it, its quality, how much energy is needed, when it's difficult to exert energy, when we over effort, how the self constellates in the middle of all of this. This is an investigation. Now, to make an effort, we need some motivation, we need intention. We need a why. The uh, philosopher Nietzsche said, um, said, uh, if someone has a why, any how will do. 
Yeah, yeah. One who has a why to life can bear almost any how. And religions have their own why stories. Uh, Buddhism not exempted. In the Buddhist tradition, it's really a a kind of archetypal story that's meant to motivate us to practice. It's a particular characterization of our existential condition that is meant to inspire effort, energy. And one of the core teachings on this, one of the core kind of motivations is characterized in this teaching on samvega, samvega. And this is a particularly, this is Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's, uh, I don't know how many decades now, a monk. Uh, and he hits hard. He takes no prisoners, which you'll hear in this quote. Uh, Samvega was what the young Prince Siddhartha, the the to-be Buddha, felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly. And an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. And so you can hear how, okay, if you actually take up that view of samsara, of the world, the cycle of birth and death, if you take up that view, it makes sense that you're going to effort really intently. And so the Buddha says, Relentlessly, I exerted myself thinking, gladly would I let the flesh and blood in my body dry up, leaving just the skin, tendons, and bones. But if I had not attained what can be reached through human persistence, human striving, there will be no relaxing in my persistence. This, uh, this is one kind of trope within Buddhism, especially within Theravadan insight tradition. Um, and you can hear how the, the dramatic language is an attempt to shake us up a bit, right? To shake us out of some kind of complacency. And I don't know how I feel about all of it. Uh, I don't know that that it feels like a 
complete characterization of human life as it's normally lived. But this kind of perspective, I can say, has been quite powerful in motivating my practice, especially in the first yeah, 10, 10 or 15 years. When I was starting practice, I was uh, I was um, listening to Dharma talks from Zeger Kongtrul Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher and teacher, Pema Chodron's teacher, actually. And uh, he was, I was so, you know, I was so new to practice and so naive and so just like, I just didn't know what was happening, but I knew I had to like keep going. I really didn't know what was happening. And uh, so in my naivete, uh, he was so helpful at, at setting a certain kind of tone of the radical nature of the path by asking for a lot from us. And uh, he would say things like, um, do you want to keep rearranging the furniture in your dream? Or do you want to wake up? And again and again, he would just, uh, yeah, beautifully motivate, inspire just to, to go, to really make a heart full effort. And uh, that, uh, that continues to be a seed of real durable motivation. It inspires energy. Our effort is, is also supported by the sense of the, the preciousness of life, the preciousness of life and the fact that it's finite. You know, it's like uh, if, we, if we add up all the time before we were born, plus all the time after we die, it's almost exactly all the time there is. And yet, for a billion strange reasons, we are here now, together. That is staggering in a way. And we know it, uh, it won't go on forever. This retreat ends, this life ends. Again, Sam Harris. Uh, most of us do our best not to think about death, but there's always a part of our minds that knows that this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away 
from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or of those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we've wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time. It's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. The paradox, of course, is because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this, and yet if you're like most people, you'll spend most of your, most of your time in life tacitly presuming you'll live forever. Like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. These kinds of reflections have a kind of hallowed place in the Buddhist tradition, not to be morbid, but uh, to cut through everything that doesn't matter. To cut right through everything that doesn't matter. To know what kind of effort we want to make towards what kind of good we want to make it to. I reflected on what inspired energy for me over the course of my practice. At first, it was just like, uh, I need to know what the hell is going on. Like, I sat down to meditate and I just was uh, startled by what was happening in my mind. I just could not believe that that's what I'd been living with. And I did not get concentrated. I did not get peaceful. I did not have insight. I did not feel some incredible connection to Buddhism or the Sangha or anything. I was just like, I need to know what is happening. There were times when there were results when I could actually sense the fruit of the practice and I wanted more. There were times when there were n I could discern no results at all from practice. But something about it felt so essential, so precious. And I think I felt like, you know, even if practice doesn't make me one jot happier, I would still do it. I would still do it. If I get nothing from
from this, I would still do it. And then there are times when it felt like uh, practice is just a way of, uh, of really honoring my life. And to, to leave it would be to, to abandon my own heart. And then, of course, there's the uh, the motivation to practice for others. Some years ago, I remember hearing a line from Shantideva, this was in Tibetan tradition, and, uh, from I think 12th or 13th century. And, and the line was something like, uh, uh, mind, please understand you do not belong to me. And uh, I don't know, there are probably many ways of interpreting that. I don't know the tradition well at all. But uh, the way I heard that was, uh, it was such a, a kind of radical gesture of like, my mind belongs to others. It belongs to the welfare of others. I will make my mind of use for others. And I just, as I heard that, I just doubled over crying. So, so beautiful that somebody could aspire in that way. So famously, Shantideva said, uh, as long as diseases afflict living beings, may I be the doctor, the medicine, and the nurse restores them to health. Uh, may I fall as rain to increase the harvest that must feed living beings. And in ages of famine, may I serve as food and drink, my body, every possession, and all goodness, past, present, and future, without remorse, I dedicate to the well-being of the world. Let's just sit. 